Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Let's get moving with Maria. Inspiration to spend a few minutes each day to get moving on the small things that can make a big difference in your life. Thank you for joining us today. Today we are talking about battling loneliness and the loneliness epidemic. And with me, Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad. She is a BYU professor of psychology and neuroscience, also the lead science editor for our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So first of all, my first question is, why do we have a loneliness epidemic? What is happening? Well, this is something that we have been seeing concerning trends now for decades. We've been collecting data on Americans and how they spend their time for the last two decades. And what we see is that there is more time spent in isolation that has um, been increasing steadily over the past two decades with simultaneous decreases in the time spent with family, both inside and outside the home, decreases in time spent with friends and and others. We also have seen over uh, multiple decades decreases in participation in various kinds of social groups and clubs. And so it's perhaps not surprising that these concerning trends are now showing up as um, at least by some estimates, as much as 50% of Americans reporting that they are lonely. So is loneliness just an emotion or is there actually a physical component to it? Is it a little bit of both? I mean, can we actually be with people and still feel lonely? So yes, we can still be with people and feel lonely. And you can be isolated and and not feel lonely. (laughs) Um, And importantly, both are associated with risk. Um, So both isolation and loneliness increase risk, as well as other kinds of forms of lacking social connection. Loneliness specifically is described as a a distressing feeling um, that is really um, very subjective, that is thought to stem from somewhat of a biological motive similar to hunger or thirst that motivates us to reconnect socially because we are social beings. We are a social species. And so it's signaling that we are lacking our social needs, much like these other biological signals signal that we are lacking something that is crucial for survival. So I know we're more connected to our devices, but once you start feeling lonely, wouldn't it be just a natural instinct to try to reconnect with people? Why are people not kind of getting that and actually trying to reconnect with people? There's somewhat of a a distinction between the kind of loneliness that 
um, is just part of a normal human experience that we all experience from time to time that may be easier to get out of, that might be easier to make those kinds of changes that, that can get you out of loneliness. Whereas there are some people who can get stuck in this and that are experiencing this quite persistently long-term and start having chronic loneliness. And for those individuals who, who may be stuck in loneliness, this can in some ways also be somewhat reinforcing. So in essence, this has often been shown to um, be linked to somewhat of a, a, a negative uh, cognitive style in that social information is perceived as more negative. So I'll just give you a real life example that perhaps lots of us can relate to. You send someone a text and they don't respond right away. So you could either interpret that as, oh, they're just busy, they're in the car, whatever, or you could interpret it as they're ignoring me. Um, and when you interpret it negatively, that can lead to behaviors that then reinforce. So if, if you think people are avoiding you, you may behave towards others in ways that reinforce some of that negative behavior in return. So sometimes you can get stuck in a reinforcing cycle that may require additional kinds of help beyond what you might be able to get out of on your own. You mentioned at the start that we are social beings and that social connection is important. Describe what that social connection really does for us. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because we often focus on loneliness and some of the negative sides of things, but there's actually really profound evidence strong evidence of the profound protective effects of social connection. And some of this evidence is even stronger um, than, than some of the effects of the risks associated with isolation and loneliness. So we have evidence that being socially connected is protective for survival. I mean, quite literally, it is associated with a 50% increased odds of survival when we track people over time. It has been linked to better health, better biological functioning, not just on a better outcomes on an individual level, but also at a societal level. When schools are more connected, we see better education outcomes. When communities are more connected, we see communities are safer, more prosperous, are more resilient to crises such as natural disasters and hazards. We see people, um, workplaces are more productive. And so not only the health of individuals and the population can be improved, but also the safety and success of our society can be improved. How Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. 
Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Much are our devices to blame for maybe this disconnectedness that we have? Well, I'm always a little careful because I, on the one hand, want to make sure that we don't entirely focus on this because there may be other factors. But on the other hand, we can't ignore the fact that some of the advances in our technology have profoundly changed the way we interact with people socially. We are more likely to interact with people remotely or online than before, which can be, you know, can come with some benefits. We can connect with people who are geographically quite distant, but it also can possibly um, replace in-person kinds of connection. But also some of these devices and apps can occupy our time and attention that can also potentially, you know, displace our time from other activities, including our relationships. So would it be safe to say, well, I know it's safe to say, our devices shouldn't be actually taking the place of the human social connection, in-person social connection, right? Right, right, yeah. We still have uh, very strong evidence of the importance, and I think everyone can relate, you know, during the pandemic, trying to connect with loved ones, where it was helpful that you could, connect, but at the same time, you'd much rather have been with them in person or wanted to give them a hug. (laughs) So there's still something missing there, right? (laughs) Right. There's no doubt about it. So for those folks that may be feeling disconnected, what would be your best advice on how to just approach you know, having more social interactions. I I know for some people, it's just not as easy as, you know, going to a social club or, I mean, because when we have young children, we seem to be more connected to parents with young children. But I know as an empty nester, it really changes that dynamic. Yeah. And and I think, first off, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. (laughs) You know, first off, recognize that you're not alone. Many people are struggling themselves as well. So this is not um, something that is extremely rare. But also to think about how these things take time. And so recognizing that it takes time to both develop new relationships, but it also takes time to nurture the relationships that we have. And so, you know, you may not have a new best friend tomorrow. Very few people instantly meet someone and are instant best friends. It often is a slow process of, you know, going from stranger to an acquaintance, to get to know people, you know, to go from an acquaintance to a friend. And it takes time to go from casual friend to a closer friend. So recognizing that, it, you know, and being patient that it takes time. But also our, you know, maintaining and nurturing our existing relationships takes time. It, taking time out of our day to spend time with them to maintain those relationships or to reach out to a friend or a family member or even just taking the time to stop and say hello to your neighbors um, or the people in your community. We wouldn't expect, you know, in terms of physical activity that just going to the gym once would instantly make us physically fit. <laughs> and so... Similarly, you know, it's going to take time and investment in our relationships um, in order for these to develop and nurture and grow. I think what you say about realizing that we're not alone is really important, 
when we're feeling lonely because yes. um, <laughs> if you feel like you're the only one feeling that way, then suddenly you're reinforcing a lot of other negative thoughts in your mind that are going to lead to even more loneliness. Exactly. Any final tips that you would like to give folks on how maybe to improve their social connection? One step that I think can help maybe get out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it's hard to make the first move. (laughs) We often wait for others to invite you to a social event or to be the one to initiate getting together or, or whatever it might be. But one of the things that we've found is that Oftentimes, the person who is providing some kind of support or helping someone can benefit as well. So, for instance, we did a study where we asked people to just do small acts of kindness for their neighbors for four weeks. And we found reductions in loneliness on the person who is actually performing the acts of kindness. So sometimes the best way to help yourself is to help others. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Oh, I could add this, and that is thinking about relationship quality. One of the things that we need to recognize is that not all relationships are entirely positive. Our relationships can bring us joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, but they can also be incredibly frustrating, demanding, insensitive. And so really, we also really need to nurture high-quality relationships because Relationships that have strain and conflict have actually been associated with risk. And so as we try to make efforts towards being socially connected, it's also being socially connected in a positive uh, way and and nurturing high-quality kinds of interactions and relationships. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.